This is episode number 561 with Nate Fox, CTO of Ribbon Health. This episode is brought to you by Neptune Labs, the metadata store for MLOps, and by Einblick.ai, the collaborative way to explore data. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast, the most listened to podcast in the data science industry. Each week, we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. I'm your host, John Crone. Thanks for joining me today. And now, let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. We've got a real nice one for you today with Nate Fox. Nate is Chief Technology Officer at Ribbon Health, a New York-based API platform for healthcare data that has raised $55 million, including a $43 million Series B last year from some of the biggest names in venture capital like Andreessen Horowitz and General Catalyst. He previously worked as an analytics engineer at the marketing startup Unified and as a product marketing manager at Microsoft. He holds a bachelor's in mechanical engineering from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and an MBA from Harvard Business School. Today's episode has some technical data science and software engineering elements here and there, but much of the conversation should be interesting to anyone who's keen to understand how data science can play a big part in improving healthcare. In this episode, Nate details what APIs are, how you design a data API from scratch, how Ribbon Health's data API leverages machine learning models to improve the quality of healthcare delivery, how to ensure the uptime and reliability of APIs, how scientists and engineers can make a big social impact in health technology, his favorite tool for easily scaling up the impact of a data science model to any number of users, and what he looks for in the data scientists he hires. All right, you ready for a great episode? Let's go. Nate, welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. It's awesome to have you here. Where in the world are you calling in from? John, thank you so much for having uh, having me here. Super excited to be here today uh, and talk about all things uh, data science and whatnot. So uh, yeah, my name is Nate Fox and uh, I'm currently calling in from uh, Westchester, actually, uh, where I live with my family, my wife and my, my two kids. Nice. So near New York, you commute by train, I guess. And uh, yeah, you work in Manhattan. Yep, that's right. Uh, so, you know, big, big fan of the suburbs. <laughs> love, love with the, the little extra space, um, especially with the kids and everything. Um, but yeah, I, wa- I walked to the train from where we live and then, you know, take the Metro North into Grand Central and then take the six down to where I work <laughs> at Ribbon Health. Nice. Yeah, very specific. Now people can follow your route into work. Uh, <laughs> yeah, look, yes, out for, look out for our listeners waving at you on the six train. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so we know each other through Austin Ogilvy. He was on episode number 535, and I've known Austin for many years, a pillar of the New York City data science startup community. He's made a number of amazing introductions to me for guests, and now you're another one of them. How do you know Austin? <laughs> Austin's awesome. So um, I went to uh, uh, HBS or business school with uh, someone named Sam uh, Lee from uh, Leica. And so when Sam is working on his new startup idea in, uh, in the security space and compliance space, he's working with Austin, one of his co-founders. Um, and mm-hmm. so the funny thing actually is that we're both companies that hit their Series B recently, um, mm-hmm. and, but we both kind of started around the same time. And so you know, it was kind of fun to see Austin's company scale to its current size and we were kind of watching each other 
uh, both kind of grow in each other's businesses. And actually, fun fact is that we actually are, uh, use Leica at Ribbon Health. Uh, so we're a big, big fan of what uh, Austin's working on. Nice. Yeah. So it's compliance as a service is kind of their big selling point. And yes, they've had some great raises lately. And you have too. So you are the CTO of Ribbon Health since founding it six years ago. And you've now raised $55 million, including, as you mentioned, kind of going neck and neck with Austin there at Leica. You raised a a $43 million Series B in 2021 including mm-hmm. from some of the biggest names possible in the venture capital world, like Andreessen Horowitz and General Catalyst. So congratulations. That's amazing. No doubt it's because of that compliance as a service software from Leica that you're using. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> <laughs> yes, one, one 100. We owe it a lot. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Austin. <laughs> and um, so, yeah. So what does Ribbon Health do? What problem does it solve? Yeah, Absolutely. So information on healthcare data is highly fragmented across thousands and thousands of sources. This is information like uh, where doctors actually practicing, what insurance do they accept, what conditions do they treat, uh, how cost-effective are they in, in treating you know, care. Um, and all this data is, is, is sitting in you know, thousands and thousands of different sources. Uh, for instance, here at Ribbon Health, we see hundreds of locations for a single doctor. And, and, and which is just crazy how much information is out there. But so not only that, like or, you look up the name of a doctor and that doctor can be associated with a hundred different medical addresses. That's correct. Uh, across, you know, potentially thousands of different sources. Um, it's really, really fragmented, uh, you know, data out there. And, and what we do is we, we aggregate all of that data to try to sort of make, find the signal, the noise. Um, and apply machine learning and data science in a lot of innovative, interesting ways. Um, it's a really, really gnarly uh, data science problem that, uh, you know, the team here is just really incredible and in how, how, how much they've done to sort of like address this problem. Nice. And we are going to dig into some of those uh, specific data science problems. So I am fascinated by the story behind the way that you got started, because you didn't start Ribbon Health with exactly this product, right? It was around 2018 that you, you realized that there was this big data quality issue and kind of uh, started focusing on the API that you're developing now today. Yep, that's, that's, that's absolutely right. Um, so we started off, our mission is to help make every healthcare decision be cost-effective, high-quality, convenient. That's, that's never changed. Um, but what has sort of evolved is that how. And so the way we started was that we were a care navigation platform trying to make it easier for patients to find care. And, and the way that we did this is we actually sold our service or our software to employers as a benefit for their employees. And so, you know, my co-founder, Nate and I, we were uh, really helping these patients find and utilize their healthcare. And we were, you know, finding them doctors, booking them appointments, et cetera. I and see. So was it like a self-service UI or you would actually have people serving these, these users? So it was a it, it was a self service UI initially with like you know our backend data uh, powering it, which ended up sort of becoming the infrastructure that you know for the rest of the like the company that currently exists today. Mm-hmm. Um, but getting back to your question, so yeah, it was self service. However, we would do things like you know a lot of like things in healthcare actually that have driven significant like high quality outcomes is proactive outreach. And so we would have users of this service, and we proactively reach out to them and say, "Hey, did you know that?" your healthcare plan has a free PCP appointment. We'd oh. love to book it for you. Click this button and we'll, oh. we'll take care of everything for you. And so people would say, yes, find me a therapist, find me a cardiologist, find me a PCP. 
Um, find me some angel dust. Find me a primary <laughs> care physician. Okay, right. I got it, got it, got it. That PCP. Right. Yes, exactly. Um, and people, I mean, the utilization of his future was phenomenal. I'm um, like, oh, wow, like, I've been meaning to go to a doctor, but it's kind of a pain. So I, I got sure, sure, you know, uh, find me, find me that doctor. Um, and so Nate and I would then on the back end, you know, once we would get someone clicking this button saying, yes, go find me that doctor. Um, uh, and they could provide some information, like the kind of doctor they're looking for, et cetera. Nate and I would then use the data that we had in our platform to then book them care. Right. And, and Nate is your co-founder. You guys have the same name. I mean, not yes. the same whole name, the same first name. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Um, I, yes, I guess for the listeners, just to clarify, yeah, that's right. My, my, my co-founder's name is also Nate. Um, I actually go by Fox usually at the company. Just that, that's kind of my, my, my call sign uh, just to make things easier for folks. Um, but yeah, that's right. Nice, cool. Well, you're fortunate to have such a cool last name. It sounds like a nickname. Um, <laughs> it is, it is. It's a, it's a, great, it's a great nickname. Um, but I, I guess getting back to your question, so mm. the, um, and so when we, the way we kind of upon this problem is that when Nate and I were trying to find and book this care, the, we realized how bad the data was. Um, we were aggregating data from a number of different sources and we would, you know, call this provider and they would say, oh, nope, out of state. Or, nope, this doctor's retired. Nope, this doctor doesn't have that insurance. Actually, this doctor passed away. And it was quite difficult. We would have to call sometimes 10 to 20 different, you know, providers to get patient X access to the care that they needed. Um, and so we initially didn't start off saying, oh, we're going to solve this massive data problem. We actually said, hey, we want to book more appointments faster, more effectively at a high quality for our patients. And so to do so, we started aggregating, collecting data and trying to predict the probability that a data point is more accurate or more reliable to make our actual operations more effective. I see. I see we're gaining here. I'm starting to understand exactly what Ribbon's doing today. So you were trying to deliver convenient, affordable healthcare to people. People were discovering through your platform that they did have an annual free visit to a primary care physician. And so they're like, yes, wow, that's cool. I'd like to have that. And then in the back end, you guys would set about trying to find them a primary care physician. And you keep discovering that doctors that are in their network aren't accepting new patients or the contact details are no longer relevant or something like that. And um, yeah, so I came across a stat while I was researching for the episode that something like 50% of data points in healthcare in the US are wrong. Yes, that's, that, that, that's, 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 that's exactly right. Um, and it's, it's pretty wild, actually. And you can read a lot about this from the CMS that have been kind of like working hard to hold, you know, insurance companies and health plans, you know, to say, hey, you can't, you, know, you can't have direct use of this inaccuracy. So there's a lot of been studies on just how inaccurate this data is. And it's a really big systemic problem. What's a CMS? Oh, the uh, Center, Center of Medical Services uh, in, in the U.S. Uh, so it's um, like a federal body that tries to regulate the quality of service that's provided or something. Yes, that's correct. That's correct. Cool. All right. So, all right. So then I can see the problem. You've got this data quality problem. So then you guys think, let's focus on building a data API for healthcare data and in addition to providing data, we will use data models, machine learning models to try to identify which data points are more likely to be correct than others. That's correct. That's correct. Cool. And then so I guess there's something like in some situations, if there's a high probability that the data are wrong, maybe you don't surface it at all, or maybe you surface it with a warning or something like that. Yeah. So, um, you know, this actually, I, 
this is a fascinating uh, case of like applying machine learning AI. I think it's so important to have like this sort of like cross-functional uh, collaboration between the data science and the product and the engineering and the API. It's, it's kind of fascinating. Um, but yeah, so we actually have confidence scores for the, the data points that we share, um, ranging between, we, tried, we wanted to simplify it. So we made like a five point system. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, five is uh, verified, validated. It is true. We know it to be true. Four oh. is a super high confidence that our model of 90% plus accuracy that we think it's true. All the way down to one, actually, where it's the inverse, where we're actually very confident that it's wrong. Um, right. And what's really interesting from a sort of solving data problem standpoint is actually depending on our end user, um, both data points is really useful. Um, health plans, for instance, really want to know that data is at a high confidence is wrong, and they should probably not have that in their directory. And then, of course, like you know, digital health companies or people doing care navigation, they want to only use data that's very high accuracy and filter out all the noise from from their system, so they can like get better hits in terms of like helping patients find a doctor that actually is where they are supposed to be. Very interesting. So my next question for you is going to be, well, my, my question, <laughs> I've got a, a first question and then I'm going to get to a second question. So the second question is going to be, you've kind of mentioned a couple of different kinds of users of your API there. So I'd love to hear from you what kinds of organizations or people use your API. But before we get to that question, I also just want, in case there are listeners out there, what is an API? What does that mean? Yes, absolutely. So API stands for Application Programming Interface. And what that means is it's basically a protocol that allows other developers to utilize a service like in, within their code uh, in a very effective, seamless way. Um, and so you know, typically what that means is it's kind of like the pipes of which like, programs can talk to each other. Um, and so I always think of like, you know, a very powerful example of this API is like Stripe, right? Uh, you don't want to have to build your own payments infrastructure and platform, right? If you're developing an e-commerce website. And so in a few lines of code with Stripe, boom, you have that ready to go. Uh, so it abstracts away a lot of complexity and a lot of developers love using all kinds of APIs in terms of the things that they're building. Cool. So the programmer doesn't have to develop something from scratch. Like with the Stripe example you're giving, uh, they don't have to come up with their own payment verification system. They can use the Stripe API and then they provide information to the API or their users can indirectly provide information to the, to the API, like their credit card details. And then Stripe can handle doing some stuff um, behind the scenes, making the payment happen, you know, verifying the credit card details, and then it can return some information back to you. So the API takes information like credit card details and then brings back other information like verified, this payment is <laughs> all good. And then you can choose what to do with that information. You can present it to the user. You can bring them to another screen that says, congratulations, your payment has gone through. So yeah, so APIs al allow uh, information to, be, uh, to go back and forth mm -hmm. and to uh, abstract away the complexity of uh, programming for programmers. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. 99% of machine learning teams are doing awesome things at a reasonable scale with say about four people and two production machine learning models. But most of the industry best practices that we hear about are from a small handful of companies operating models at hyperscale. The folks over at Neptune.ai care about the 99%. And so they are changing the status quo by sharing insights, tool stacks, and real life stories from practitioners doing ML and ML ops at a reasonable scale. 
Neptune have even built a flexible tool for experiment tracking and model registry that will fit your workflow at no scale, reasonable scale, and beyond. To learn more, check them out at Neptune.ai. That's Neptune.ai. Um, and, and just the way you kind of describe the shape example really well, like, like the API that we have does the same sort of complexity abstraction for provider data. Um, all those messy thousands of sources you have to deal with, uh, managing and reconciling that data, um, editing and changing the information if you need, if you realize that it's incorrect and you need to correct it. Um, it's a giant, you know, data management nightmare. And our API aims to make that a lot more seamless. Cool. All right. So let's dig into that a bit more. So what kind of information do you provide to the API? What kind of information comes back? What are some examples of users of this information? Yep, absolutely. So, uh, you know, one of our primary use cases is what we call the find care use case. Uh, so, you know, a lot of people are using our technology to help patients find care in a variety of different contexts. Um, so, you know, one example of an endpoint is our provider's endpoints. So you can basically tell this endpoint and say, um, my address is 100 Main Street in New York City. Um, I have Humana as my insurance. And I'm looking for a doctor that treats patients like me uh, that are, you know, male of age, you know, 30 to uh, 39. Um, and the API intakes that information and then uses that to sort of filter and do a geo search of, of the providers that actually uh, match those parameters. Uh, and the response says, hey, here are 10 providers and all of their data, you know, what conditions they treat, their average rating, their score, their, locate, their distance to the, the address that you put in. Uh, nice. And then, yeah. And then confidence scores on top of some of the information as well. Exactly right. And I actually forgot to mention that a lot of times people are using what we call our main location confidence uh, parameter. So they actually are saying, hey, Ribbit, I only want data that is, you know, highly accurate. Um, and so oftentimes that's an input. And so, you, you know, providers can sort of, the end users can then see, oh, you know, this data, I can trust this data. Um, and they can decide how to use that confidence score uh, in the front end for the end user. Nice. So that makes sense. So, so when you describe a situation like that, somebody looking for a doctor, most people don't know how to write programs themselves. Most people wouldn't be able to call your API to let them know that they live at 100 Main Street and they're between 30 and 39 and that they want high quality information. So then what kind of person, what kind of organization uses your API to surface this information in a user interface for a user to work with? Yep, absolutely. Um, so it's really interesting, actually, you know, provider data is, you know, there's tens, there's 10 billion plus healthcare decisions being made every year in the US. Um, and that's happening in so many different kinds of contexts. I think there's like over 100,000 uh, healthcare applications that are doing some sort of mode of decision making in healthcare. Um, and this just means that our client base actually separates across many different segments. Um, and so I'll actually use three broad categories uh, for, the, for the listeners and like the kinds of people that are using our technology. Mm -hmm. The first is health plans. So these are, uh, you know, insurance companies that, uh, you know, are, are very deep in the provider data problem. Uh, the second is uh, providers, um, which are, are companies that are providing care to patients. So you can think of a company um, like, you know, one medical or a telemedicine company like Roe, where like they're actually providing patients with care. And then finally, uh, a category we call digital health. So there's been a massive explosion in investment in this space. And there's many kinds of companies offering either direct to consumer or like care navigation for employers, all kinds of solutions uh, in this space. And they kind of stumble upon this provider data problem. They say, wow, like this is really hard and challenging. I wonder if there's technology that helps me solve it so I can focus on my other core competencies. And so that's also 
another segment. Super cool. All right. So when you set out to design this API from scratch, how do you do that? How is the CTO of a company that you're like, okay, clearly there's this big data problem. We need to fix this. We need to provide plumbing to all these different kinds of users, health plans, healthcare providers, digital health companies. How do you then set out to design this API? It's, it's a great question. Um, I think a uh, one thing that comes to mind is I think we actually had a lot of empathy as a company because we were utilizing other data services and like provider data solutions um, before we built what is now Ribbon Health. Um, and so I think, you know, in having built healthcare applications ourselves, um, a lot of things we wish we wanted uh, in, the, like, in an API that would help us build the solution that we were building kind of guided some of our initial product development. Um, and so that was kind of like where we started. Right. Right. So I imagine a lot of people when they're designing an API, they would need to talk to potential customers because they might not actually have firsthand experience of what the API they would need. Like, so you have this idea, you're like, okay, I have this idea for an API, but without having actually needed that API yourself, you might need to talk to different prospective users. But in your case, you had already built a user interface that would love to have had the API that you built. <laughs> that you yeah. So, so you could kind of, you could just imagine you're like, well, what would I love to have? Okay. I'd love to have X and Y and Z. And then you kind of prioritize those features and you're like, okay, what can I get to market relatively quickly uh, that I can start selling? That's not going to be the biggest possible lift. So you kind of prioritize um, it, features in that way. And then you just start building them and releasing them. Yep, exactly. And actually, um, and, and we certainly had a lot to learn from what our customers needed besides just our own experience. And actually, sure, sure, sure. there was a really interesting thing we did kind of by organic happenstance. So, you know, I, as we talked about earlier in, in, in this podcast, you know, we were this care navigation uh, service before. And so we, you know, both my co-founder and I actually had backgrounds in like data startups. And so we were very naturally building this back-end infrastructure. And then other healthcare companies came to us and said, hey, where do you guys get your doctor data? It looks pretty good. Like, can we access it? Do you guys have an API? Can we, can we tap into this data? Um, and so we started kind of feeling this very strong pull. And, you know, so we had all of this back-end internal, like, endpoints that we were using for ourselves. And not all of them were ready to be exposed necessarily with, the, you know, the full investment infrastructure, um, you know, ready and available to be fully productized. And so actually what we did is, in our documentation, we sort of wrote down all the theoretical endpoints and we could either were already live or like could be built within 24 to 48 hours. Um, and, you know, we had a status on the documentation that said like, you know, uh, live uh, for the, the endpoints that were actually truly live in, in the API. And then another status that was like, um, you know, contact us to learn more, right? And, you know, through that, you know, that experimentation, you got a lot of strong market signal of like which endpoints were resonating with customers and where we should invest and developing. Uh, and so we could really kind of align our development efforts with what customers were explicitly asking for. Once they saw it, they're like, oh, I want that. Like, yes. Like, do you, like, where is it? Why can't I access it? I want it now. And that would really help us, you know, have empathy for the end user. Nice. Very cool. All right. So in your answer to my last question, Nate, you alluded to your background. And so I've got a question for you related to that. So you've worked extensively in business analytics at companies like McKinsey, Microsoft, and Unified. Did you encounter a lot of incorrect and missing data in those experiences as well? And so how, if so, has your experience with those kinds of business analytics 
um, situations helped you on your journey to co-founding Ribbon? It's a, it's a very um, interesting question. I think, um, so at Microsoft, you know, I was working on what was called like the Windows scorecard, um, which is a really interesting uh, KPI dashboard the executives there used to understand the state of their business. Um, so, you know, what's our market share in, you know, Internet Explorer or for service tablets or like what have you. Um, and you can imagine for a scorecard like that, you have tons and tons of different sources, right? That you have to aggregate and centralize in one place. That's one thing. And then also Unified, um, Unified was this amazing uh, uh, company that I that works on sort of like the marketing supply chain of ad tech. So how does a CMO understand their, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of ad spend across, you know, uh, Snapchat and Instagram and, you know, Facebook and Google, et cetera. It's actually really hard to answer that question because the data is very fragmented across mm -hmm. many different silos, mm -hmm. right? So I you can kind see of where see you're going. You can see these <laughs> parallels. Um, so I think, you know, the things I had learned there was actually sort of the importance and the power and the value of bringing data together in one centralized place because it's really, really, really challenging to do so. Um, and then also, how do you make a sense of the signal from the noise, right? What, what are the principles of which, you know, the data is accurate and actually matters? And how do you design the systems to employ strong analytics uh, and et cetera to like make, take action of that data and have it actually be useful? Um, so I think, you know, th those are probably the things I picked up and applied that are relevant to ribbon health. Nice, great answers. And then so I imagine that now that you're at Ribbon and you are worried about um, data quality, there's also probably a lot of other issues with data. So for example, how do you address issues around uptime and reliability of your API? So like data quality is one thing, but then how do you also on top of that uh, ensure yeah, you the reliability of your API? Oh yeah, no, that's, um, that's a, it's a great, Great question. Uh, so I guess the first it starts with an amazing API team uh, at, at at Ribbon Health, um, which uh, really ensures high high time uptime and performance. You know, it's so critical for us to be really reliable because people are building their applications and their healthcare experience on top of our API, and the stakes are pretty high because if we go down, then people who are trying to access care can't access care in that moment. So we take it very 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 seriously. Right. Um, and so the way we do this is that we leverage, you know, a lot of the load balancing and sort of infrastructure that AWS offers to ensure that as, you know, if there's spikes in demand, we can handle them. Um, in addition to having like a variety of testing and also monitoring, right? So we utilize, we're big fans of Datadog that, you know, allows us to understand immediately if there's something happening with the calls that we're getting um, mm -hmm. and then allow us to quickly either revert or like make a change so that like our API doesn't go down. Nice. That's a really good tip there. Yeah, Datadog, I could imagine would definitely be useful for monitoring reliability. That's what it's designed for. Yes, so, and, and stat tracing. Stat tracing, incredible. Because like the moment you hear something's going, what's going wrong? You can kind of see in the code. And um, uh, you know, one of our engineers uh, set, set that all up and uh, it was it's awesome. Brilliant. All right, so let's talk about a specific example where you could use data science to solve an issue. So we talked about the confidence scores, which actually that would be something maybe even of itself that I didn't ask about. but. How do you train a data science model to assign confidence scores if, if you're allowed to share that, if you can share that uh, kind of publicly? Oh, absolutely. Um, so I think this is like a fascinating example of how, you know, productizing machine learning and AI is a really cross-functional thing that requires collaboration of data engineering, data science, product, and marketing 
to actually position and like make an, a complicated thing, right? An app, a machine learning model uh, in a way that's digestible to the end user, right? Um, and so step one is in the data engineering sense, where we talked a lot about this data point that has to happen. We're collecting data from thousands and thousands of different data schemas and transforming that data and normalizing it at scale to create what we call this massive, massive knowledge graph. Um, and in this knowledge graph, we have an immense amount of data. A lot of it is not right and uh, you know incorrect because it's impossible for a doctor to be practicing at you know fifty to one hundred locations at once. Right. But we but but more importantly, we normalize that data and and you know get the unique set of information, all the unique sets of addresses and phone numbers, and what's an NPI? That's a unique identifier for a doctor. Really important, by the way. And I could go on and on about join keys and the points of a unique identifier, but I'll, I'll hold off on that. <laughs> um, and, and then uh, you, you have this knowledge graph. And what we do is most of that data is incorrect, right? Um, but what's really important is we need the right truth set. And this is where, um, you know, the collaboration with product is really important. Um, so we actually have a call center where on a monthly basis, we are sampling this knowledge graph and calling tens and tens of thousands of providers. And we have a very, very carefully worded script that product is designed with the end user in mind of like, what is truth? How do you define truth, right? Because mm. everyone has different definitions of truth, but we have our own perspective mm. on that. And the product managers actually kind of decided based on what they, we want the end user to see, which is high quality data that you can trust. That like, if you call a doctor and you say, I want to book an appointment, that you, that you can book an appointment and you can go to that address and it's correct, right? Um, and so our script is worded in a way where we call that provider and we say, hello, you know, uh, is this, is, is this a, uh, the office of so-and-so at 100 Main Street. Can I yes, this is Dr. So-and-so. Yeah. And, and actually, this is actually very normal in healthcare. Like validation, because the data is so bad, people are used to these validation calls. Right. And so um, the questions that we ask give us discrete true-false signals um, that we can then train a you know, classifier on predicting. Is it true or false, right? Um, and so we utilize, um, we, you know, we experiment with the inner forest and like other different kind of models to do this. And the, we, we use a very, like, uh, a high number of variables, an XG boost model that has hundreds of variables to predict the probability of true versus false. Cool. Um, and how those sources of line agree and disagree. And we then get like a, a predictive, we get an output between zero and one, right? Now yeah. saying 0.723 is not particularly useful to the end user. And this is where like, you know, um, product and marketing also come in, like how do we position these things in terms of confidence scores that matter, right? And so then there's a collaboration between data science and like sort of um, product marketing to figure out, okay, what does it mean for something to be a four out of five? And how do you position that? It's a highly accurate mm -hmm. data point, 90% plus accurate. And so then that's kind of, that's a full sort of supply chain from data engineering all the way to product marketing that makes this a reality. Cool. I'm so glad that I asked and that you could share. That is fascinating. So you start with a knowledge graph and then you sample from that knowledge graph to manually check the quality of the data. And then you can use those labels as inputs into a machine learning model. And right now you guys are using an XGBoost model with hundreds of inputs to predict those labels. And so you get some, uh, some float value confidence score. Yep. Uh, and then you convert that into something that's easy to understand, this five-point scale. Um, from one to five for users to be able to quickly digest, okay, it's a four, it's pretty reliable, or it's a five, great, I can definitely trust this. Einblick is a faster and more collaborative way to explore your data and build models. It was developed at MIT and showed to reduce time to insight by 30 to 50%. 
Einblick is based on a novel progressive engine, so no matter the data size, your analysis won't slow down. And Einblick's novel interface supports the seamless combination of no-code operations with Python code. This makes Einblick the go-to data science platform for the entire organization. Sign up for free today at einblick.ai. That's E-I-N-B-L-I-C-K dot A-I. E-I-N-B-L-I-C-K dot A-I. Nice. Another cool example of machine learning that you guys do at Ribbon Health that I came across while I was researching for this episode, or that you might have even mentioned to me on a previous call, was that you run into this problem of entities having multiple names. So you have the same hospital, say, that goes by tons of different names. So you could call the Stanford Children's Hospital is also known as Lucille Packard. It's also known as LPCH. There's dozens potentially of different ways of referring to the same hospital. And if you're a person, particularly if you're already familiar with the institution, it's no problem for you to resolve that ambiguity. But to a machine, it's just a string of characters. And so LPCH sounds like a very different thing from Lucille Packard. Uh, so you guys have come up with a pretty cool technique for uh, resolving this issue, yeah? Yep, absolutely, yeah. So we use um, a, so this is like a big cluster problem for us to do this entity formation. And we use dimensionality reduction using principal component analysis or known as PCA, mm -hmm. as well as clustering via a Gaussian mixture modeling. Um, and I, I, I cannot take credit for this, 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 um, <laughs> this, it's, it, it was, um, designed by our amazing data science team, uh, which, uh, is, uh, you know, you can actually read about Samir in our technical innovators award, um, who was kind of like the, uh, the mastermind behind, behind this model, as well as one of his, uh, you know, his peers, Aaron, who, uh, who worked together closely on, on this. Cool. Nice. So, uh, do you have a bit more detail for us on how that works? Like, so. I guess you have a bunch of different information. So for every um, hospital, for every entity, you have like size information, location information. And so you're able to provide all of that as inputs into a clustering model or a Gaussian mixture model um, so that it can, uh, yeah, start to cluster together. Okay, based on the size and the location, it seems pretty likely that Stanford Children's Hospital, Lucille Packard, and LPCH are actually all the same thing. Yes, that, 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 that's exactly right. And again, you know, you'll see if there's a formula here, right? We actually built another truth set where we sort of had you know, humans manually cluster this data together so right. we could like get, you know, train on something that we know we trust. Um, and that's exactly right. You know, we, we geocode the address into a lat-long coordinate so we can, you know, we can cluster around an address, but even within an address, you'll see a wide variety of names. And a lot, a lot of times actually addresses have multiple entities at them, right? Um, imagine like a, um, an address that has different departments, right? Department of Gynecology and, you know, what have you. And so we actually have to sort of cluster within an address node. Um, and the other features like a phone number or a location type or other metadata allow us to like then do that clustering more, more effectively. Nice, really cool. Okay, so cool. So I'm starting to understand all of the different facets that you understand as a CTO, Nate. So you've got to understand about product. Clearly, you understand about data science, and you understand engineering as well. You know, things like API uptime, you're, you're concerned with all these different issues. What is the day-to-day -day like as a CTO of a very fast-growing, API-focused data company? 
That's a, that's a very interesting question. Every, every, every day is a little bit different. Um, I think, and I think especially like the CTO role, uh, it can, can kind of come in a number of different ways. I think like for me, the North Star that I try to think about is what can I do to best scale and help grow the technology organization more broadly? Um, and so th there's, you know, kind of three major buckets that I kind of see. Uh, you know, one is hiring, right? Like building a great team. At the end of the day, great, you know, engineers, data scientists, product managers, et cetera. They want to work with other great talent, right? So meeting great talent, helping them understand the mission, what we're trying to solve. Um, you know, that's, that's one piece. Another piece is like the technology organization itself, working with other leaders within the organization to figure out is how we're operating and building products together. Is that effective? Um, how are we doing sprint planning? How are we assembling in pods? What's our process for building products? Um, and, and, you know, as a company scaling a startup, what works really well at 10 people, at 20, at 70, et cetera, it's always changing. And so we're always kind of like thinking through how do we make decisions and, and, and empower the team to, be, to do their best creative work. Nice. Um, and, and then, then the last one more. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I guess the last piece is just um, thinking of a technical architecture and like the, 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 the technologies we're using more broadly and, how our, and the products that we're building specifically. Nice. Very cool. Yeah, and congrats on being able to grow at all of those stages. I can imagine that it's a quite a different situation. All of these things, whether it's hiring or the organization of the organization, <laughs> the organization yeah. of the organization, or um, the technical architecture at each stage, whether you're a company of 10 people with maybe a couple dozen clients to now being, yeah, many dozens of, uh, of employees and however many clients, like it just constantly orders of magnitude more you need to be adjusting rapidly all of these different aspects. So um, sounds like probably a, a big challenge, but probably pretty exciting. No, it's, 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 it's a ton of fun. Um, and I think what's really makes it special is actually the people here at Ribbon Health. Um, you know, like people here just, uh, you know, we have, a, we, we have our, uh, a values of the company that we, that we, that we take seriously and that we really lean into. Um, and, you know, so the people here, they love to you know, solve hard problems. They're highly kind, empathetic. Um, and so, you know, it's, um, Yes, it's, it's, it's a bit chaotic and a lot's happening, but it's, it's a lot of fun, especially when you're, when you're building things with people that, that you enjoy working with. Nice, nice. So I imagine as CTO now of quite a large company, you don't get to roll up your sleeves and write code yourself as much as you might like, but do you have any particular software tools that you think would be interesting for our audience to hear about? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and actually, I'll, I'll, I'll be inspired to think of, uh, you know, the person I mentioned earlier, Samir, um, who, who leads our data science function here at Ribbon Health. Um, and actually, the, the service that I'd, I'd mentioned is actually AWS Lambda, which is a serverless mm -hmm. event-driven compute service uh, that AWS provides. Um, and the way this works is you can basically build these functions uh, on AWS and Lambda, and you can uh, call these, these functions like an API uh, once an event is triggered. And it's allowed us to do two interesting things. The first is actually, it allows us to paralyze really, really compute intensive, uh, like the cluster work actually we mentioned uh, in locations. And so like every time we get a new location endpoint, we have to like recluster that data at that address node. And so um, we can, you know, run a lot of these, you know, micro transactions or micro events uh, and paralyze, you know, millions and millions and millions of them in a given day. Uh, and the second thing is actually, uh, it sets the, the bedrock of which, you know, our data engineers, data scientists can actually interact with each other by having a, a lambda function that they can call where they can say, hey, like, score this data point, like, tell us how accurate it is. And then, you know, once that, um, that interaction node is established, data science can update and change their code and, their, and how things work. 
with the core data pipelines still running as they do. So it allows for very seamless interaction between data engineering and data science. Super cool. Yeah. Lambda functions are great uh, with AWS. So it allows you to have some function that you'd like to be able to call, but you don't know how much you're going to need to be calling it at a given moment in time. So having your own servers configured to handle highly variable loads can be tricky. And so this kind of serverless approach where you let AWS manage that for you um, allows you to scale particular functions that you'd like to run to any size uh, really rapidly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. Exactly right. Cool, Nate. So clearly y'all are doing some really interesting data science and engineering. And you alluded to this a little bit earlier that you have a value-driven culture. What is it exactly that you look for in the data scientists that you hire, the engineers that you hire? And you are doing some hiring right now, aren't you? <laughs> yes, yes, please. Yeah, we, have, we have so many interesting, fascinating data science challenge problems uh, out there. And I think the thing I'd stress actually is that um, you know, our, our, our challenges are really driving like value within healthcare. Um, you know, and so if you're, if you're the kind of scientist that, uh, you know, wants to focus on helping patients find care as opposed to optimizing the next ad click, uh, you know, rib, ribbon health is a great place for you, for you, for you to come to. Um, but in, ter- in terms of like, you know, what we look for in hires, um, there's two dimensions on a high level. One is tech is aptitude for, for the role. So, you know, like, is this person technically strong and excellent? Like, at, 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 you know, do they have the aptitude for it, um, for, for doing it? Uh, we don't only just look at like, you know, how they've done it before. We also look for aptitude. The second is values alignment. Uh, you know, here at Ribbon Health, we have six core values um, that we, you know, we created before the company was even founded, actually, um, because it's not something you can just like say, oh, these are our values and just like say them like in an organization. You have to kind of be intentional about it. At least that's the way that we thought about it. And these six values are, you know, run towards hard problems is the first run one. Run towards hard problems, yeah. The next one is putting your team first. Third is do what you say. Uh, and that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to do everything that you say, right? But if you're going to say you can do something and you can't do it, let your teammate know, right? Like, um, like be, be, be accountable and be transparent with like, you know, uh, when, you, when you commit to something. Uh, another value is stay hungry, keep improving. And, you know, this is the notion of like, no matter how well, you know, you're doing or, 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 or like, there's always room for like being even better and improving yourself. The fifth is practicing habits of excellence. You know, so we don't, um, you know, we don't celebrate necessarily just the outcome. We actually celebrate the process of getting there. Uh, and like, are we doing the right things to get to the right outcome? Uh, the process does matter. And then finally, build an empathy. You know, so at the end of the day, it's important to think what's best for, you know, patients. And so always, you know, it, you know when you're working on these hard data problems, ne- to always never lose sight of how this data and the technologies that we're building are affecting real humans and patients at the end of the day. Nice. Super cool. So aptitude. And then you want values alignment. And I love your six values running headfirst into hard problems, putting teams first, um, doing what you say, keeping improving, uh, having habits of excellence and empathy. Really cool. Uh, Yeah, and it sounds like an amazing organization to work for. Um, Yeah, having any kind of values-driven culture where the whole purpose of the company is to be streamlining healthcare, getting people the help that they need more quickly uh, I think, yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of people out there with whom that message resonates. So, yeah, uh, listeners, <laughs> get in touch with Ribbon Health. <laughs> Sounds like an amazing place to work. All right, so beyond Ribbon, what are other ways that engineers can make a big social impact in health tech? 
Oh, there's there's so many ways. You know, the, the world of health tech is just absolutely exploding. I think there's been, you know, 50 to $100 billion investment in the recent last year or two, just in the space of, you know, digital health. It's really, really tremendous. Uh, we actually partner with a lot of these companies. And so I think, you know, if, you know, thinking through your interests, you know, there's just so much opportunity um, to create value, especially these tech companies are very tech forward now, uh, increasingly. And so, you know, it's it's a wonderful time to kind of jump in in a, an industry that is so much craving, you know, innovation and and and, and the utilization of more modern technologies. Uh, where there's just a lot of uh, opportunity for creativity in terms in terms of solving really hard problems that affect patients. Very cool. Yeah, it's really exciting. An amazing time to be a data scientist. Uh, so many different kinds of problems we can be tackling. More and more data being collected from, you know. Uh, exponentially more sensors around the planet at any given time. Companies like yours that are verifying data quality, so now providing data scientists with high quality data that they could be building models with, really, really, uh, yeah, couldn't be a better time to be interested in data science and making a big social impact. So beyond health tech and the big social impact that people can make in that, another thread in your career in particular, Nate, is that you've been working in venture capital. So first at F prime capital, and then as an Insight Fellow. So first, I guess, the Insight Fellowship sounds like a super interesting program. So I'd love for you to let the audience know about what that is. And then what did those experiences at F Prime Capital and Insight um, afford you that helped you launch a startup so successfully yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you know, both, both were incredibly helpful uh, and, and informative. Um, I guess on the, on the venture capital side, just understanding how investors think in terms of the companies they want to invest in and kind of like what they expect to see. Um, and, you know, really taught me just how to think about startups and, and venture in general. And like, how, you know, if you're going to start a company, like how do you want to fit into the venture model and like, you know, is, and, and how to engage with it in an intentional way. Uh, on, on the Insight Fellowship, you know, I really enjoyed that program. Uh, for context, you know, every city, I think there's a number of cities in the U.S. that have different chapters. I know there's one in New York, there's one in Boston, I believe there's also one uh, in the Bay Area. Um, and what Insight uh, uh, Fellowship is, is basically a cross-section of um, students that are in school. They're a mixture of like MBAs and law school students and, uh, you know, software engineers as well, come together uh, to do pro bono internships for startups in the area. Mm. Um, and so, you know, while I was in school, you know, I hadn't fully been, you know, uh, I had met Nate and we were working on a number of ideas together, but earlier on, it was a great way for me to meet other founders and, you know, startups working on all kinds of problems. And then you would get a consulting project and kind of be able to dig your teeth into it and like help them and sort of see what is it like, you know, to actually be on the ground and really understand some of the hard problems they're trying to solve. Really cool. All right. Yeah. Insight sounds like an amazing opportunity for people who are interested in those cities you mentioned, and maybe other cities as well. And so, yes, in addition to that venture capital experience, I see that you also co-founded a toy company <laughs> and that you have a passion for patenting educational toys. So what inspired you to work on that? <laughs> yes. Um, I, uh, it's it, it's it's one uh, toy pad, and I think um, that's something that one of my colleagues put on the website uh, that I love to do that. Um, but so in, in college, my my, uh, my roommate Mike Lowe, wonderful, amazing person uh, that I, I loved working with and still keep in touch with to this day. Um, we actually took a toy product design class uh, at uh, at MIT. Fascinating class in product design, uh, where you know 
the, you know, the aspect of designing a toy is kind of fascinating, right? Because it has to be very appealing to the end user, but also has to be very uh, easy and relatively affordable to manufacture. So very interesting mm-hmm. kind of like design challenge to think through in terms of like um, design thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, there was actually this, uh, this concept that, um, you know, me and my, my colleague, Mike had, or my friend, uh, one of my close friends, he's, he's in my uh, wedding party, but uh, worked on where we said, hey, you know, this was a really fun toy to build in class. Like, let's, you know, we're here in college. Let's kind of experiment. Like, can we actually monetize? Can we build this and like see if people want to buy it? Because kids loved it. Um, what the toy was actually it was a card connector that made making card castles really seamless and easy. Um, there's like an interesting, like, uh, we, we made the injection mold in terms of making this plastic piece and got manufactured in China and then, you know, built the pieces. Uh, and then we had met this wonderful lawyer who was helping MIT students at the time, uh, like, make patents pro bono. Um, and so she kind of guided us through the process and we got it patented. Uh, and the very funny thing was actually that another company built a very similar product that was exactly the same as ours. Um, and they were interested in actually acquiring and buying our patents for like a licensing perspective. And mm-hmm. so then we ended up selling it to that company, um, which was like a oh, very wow. interesting experience for, for uh, as students. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Tons of experience, I imagine, in that. And um, yeah, you can learn a lot about intellectual property. And yeah, again, you're making an impact. You're creating things that people really want to use. And so no doubt that also had um, some impact on your ability to design great products now later in your career. Cool, Nate. So it has been absolutely wonderful interviewing you. We are getting near the end of the episode, which means that it's time for a question that listeners certainly are accustomed to. Nate, do you have a book recommendation for us? Yes, absolutely. So... Um, this actually book was something that my, um, my, my co-founder Nate recommended to me a long time ago that I really enjoyed. Um, and it's how will you measure your life uh, by Blake, by Clayton Christensen. Mm. Um, and it actually goes essentially into, you know, the importance of certain things in your life, like your relationships. Um, and it's a fascinating book that kind of really asks you to take a step back and ask like, you know, what actually matters in your life. And, you know, when you look back on it, you know, how, how, how will you measure it? Hence the title. Uh, it's, it's, it's a fascinating book that really is, makes you, makes you reflect about, you know, what's, what's important. And the answer is dollars, right? Dollars is what matters at the end of life. Depends on who you are, but yes, that could be the answer for some people, I guess. I guess so. Yeah. It doesn't seem like it's going to be a very happy answer. Definitely. Awesome. So, Clearly, Nate, you're a brilliant guy. We've learned tons from you in this episode. How can listeners stay in touch with you after the episode? Yeah, no, I mean, if you're interested in learning more about Ribbon Health, you can email me at uh, fox at ribbonhealth.com. As well as, you know, if you're interested in any of our roles, please apply online. Uh, And, you know, um, and also if you want to use Ribbon, you can also, you know, ask for access on our website too. Nice. And do you do use Twitter, LinkedIn or anything? Social media people can follow you on? Yeah, you can follow me on my Twitter at Nate the Fox and as well as on my LinkedIn uh, as well. Nice. All right. Thank you so much, Nate. We'll be sure to include those links in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining us on the program. And maybe we can check in sometime in the future and see how your journey is coming along. Absolutely. John, thank you so much for your, your, your many questions. And it was a pleasure and had, had a blast with you. Thank you so much for having me here.
What a wonderfully informative episode. Today, Nate filled us in on how Ribbon uses knowledge graphs, manually labeled data samples, and an XG boost model with hundreds of inputs to assign a confidence score of one to five to individual healthcare data points. He talked about how you design an API by talking to prospective customers and prioritizing features, the tremendous value in centralizing fragmented data, how Datadog and extensive stack tracing can help ensure API uptime and reliability, and how AWS Lambda can be used to seamlessly scale API functions up to any number of users or calls. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, the URLs for Nate's social media profiles, as well as my own social media profiles at superdatascience.com slash 561. That's superdatascience.com slash 561. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd greatly appreciate it if you left a review on your favorite podcasting app or on the Super Data Science YouTube channel. I also encourage you to let me know your thoughts on this episode directly by adding me on LinkedIn or Twitter and then tagging me in a post about it. Your feedback is invaluable for helping us shape future episodes of the show. Finally, if you live in the New York area and would like to experience a Super Data Science episode filmed live, then come to Scale Up AI, which will be held on April 6th and 7th. That's Scale Up AI on April 6th and 7th. Many of the biggest names in data science will be there, such as Andrew Ng, Ali K. Miller, Thomas Pfister, and Will Falcone. Wow. I can't wait to meet all these people. Um, I'll be moderating a panel on open source software featuring Clément Delong, the CEO of mega cool machine learning company Hugging Face, which we expect to edit into a super data science episode. Should be tons of fun, and I hope to meet you there or somewhere else soon. All right, thanks to my colleagues at Nebula for supporting me while I create content for you. And thanks, of course, to Ivana Siebert, Mario Pombo, Serge Massis, Sylvia Ogvang and Kirill Aramenko on the Super Data Science team for managing, editing, researching, summarizing, and producing another super interesting episode for us today. Keep on rocking it out there, folks, and I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science podcast with you very soon. <laughs>